0: The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sallie, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, let me thank you again for for being here. I know sometimes when things are are different like they have been these last couple of weeks, uh, that can be a challenge. And I want to just say thank you for being here and being a part of worship, even though it's a little unconventional. Uh, If you would, take a moment and find in your Bibles Hosea chapter 6. And as you're turning there, Hosea chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 11 this morning. But before we get into the text, something has providentially happened today that, you know, when we're going through a book of the Bible, we don't necessarily know what day or date that's going to fall on. We're just going through systematically through the text. But today is September the 12th. And so I just want to briefly share how yesterday morning I had the opportunity to be involved in some activities going on here in Wagner. And uh, we had a, a time of prayer for our community yesterday morning down at the fire Fest that was going on. And um, yesterday being the 20th anniversary of the tragedy of September 11th, 2001. And there were many things said that day, uh, yesterday, all the activities that that we uh, went through and the prayers that were prayed and different statements that were made. But one thing that struck me in particular was this, one one of my fellow pastors made this statement And he said he was thinking about the perspective that changed. If you think about how people were living and thinking and behaving on September the 10th, before that tragic day, going about their normal routines, not uh, necessarily a care in the world, so to speak, Uh, certainly not on that level, and everything was... As normal, I guess, as it could be. And then, on September 11th, everything changed. At 8.46 a.m., when the first tower was struck, and there was disbelief and confusion. What in the world is going on? How could an airline pilot possibly miss this huge building in front of them? What a terrible accident. And then at 9.03 a.m., the second plane struck the second tower, and then everything changed in our perspectives because we then knew something was not just accidental. Something was terribly wrong. And then as the rest of the events of that day unfolded, we came to realize what was going on and the the tragedy that was taking place. But I want to talk particularly about the perspective and attitude of September the 12th which is today. If you recall, and I've spoken about this in the past, uh, how September the 16th, which was the Sunday following, because September 11th, 2001 was on a Tuesday. If you think about that Sunday and how churches were filled all across the land, but then the, the unfortunate occurrence of how the following Sunday, September 23rd, it seemed that churches were back to their normal attendance And it only took a week, a week and a half for things to subside as far as people really searching for spiritual truth and comfort. But on September 12th, 20 years ago today, there was a profound knowledge and recognition of spiritual things and perhaps even self-examination Things were much more serious on September 12th, 20 years ago. And not only were they serious, there were many barriers and dividers that were suddenly invisible. There was perhaps greater unity in the United States of America than there had been for years and years before and maybe even years since. Because on that day... We were all bound together with a common purpose and a common idea that we were together as a country. And it took something tragic to make that happen. And so, I don't want to belabor that point just because of what we've not celebrated but remembered 20 years ago, yesterday and then today. But I do want to make some application to our text that we're going to read here in just a moment. The title of the message today is A Punishment for Ingratitude. Our neglect of being thankful. Our neglect of recognizing our sinfulness in light of God's holiness and our great need for Christ, for forgiveness, for reconciliation and restoration to God and As we neglect to recognize that need, then we don't understand how we should respond. And we're going to see something very, in particular, very uh, related to God's people in Israel and the judgment that has come and is coming to them in this text. But I couldn't help but make that connection between their day and our day. Twenty years ago, On this date, we were painfully aware of all the things going on around us. We were seeking spiritual truth. We were uh, experiencing an uncommon unity. And then 20 years pass, and it appears that that has largely been forgotten to our detriment. Because if we don't remember who we are in light of who God is if we don't remember who God is in particular how he relates to us and his goodness his grace his mercy his forgiveness if we don't remember those things then we won't be thankful for those things and if we're not thankful then we won't respond to him in the right way so today I want to read through Hosea chapter 6 beginning in verse 4 and going to the end of that chapter in verse 11. And then just talk about two different things that we see in this text and how they apply to us and what we can do and take from this in order to not make the same mistakes that God's people made all those years ago. Listen to what the Bible says, Hosea chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew, which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth, like lightning, is what he's saying. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints, and as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people." Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would speak clearly to our hearts today for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know God longs to be merciful to his people. He does not desire to be wrathful or judgmental or punishing That's not his desire, and yet, because of his holiness and his righteousness and his justice, that's exactly what he'll do in order to punish sin. He won't let sin go unpunished, even though his desire, his longing is to be merciful to his people. So in this particular text today, in verse 4... All the way down to verse 7, we start to see the accusations that God is bringing against his people to try to get their attention. You know, it seems in these prophets, almost continually, God is trying to get his people's attention. And the fact that he has to continue to try to do that lets us understand something about the people's response. They're not responsive. Because if they were, then he wouldn't have to continually try to get their attention but it appears that's what he's having to do. And he mentions some things in this first portion here from verse 4 to verse 7. He talks about some things that he notices among his people. And so I want you to think about this, not in reference to the Israelites of the day, but in reference to us, in reference to our people today, this country, this nation in which we live, and even more specifically, the communities in which we live. Think about it in that context God says in his word, there is a lack of love for God. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that can say, well, yeah, just look around. There's a lack of love for God. There are many people who are not tuned in to spiritual things. They're not honoring God in their lives. They're not prioritizing spiritual things. And and I find myself guilty on many counts of this very same thing times when I have not prioritized what I know God wants and I've instead turned away to what I want. And there's a so so God says there's a lack of love for God and he says the words loving kindness and loyalty here they're they're kind of used like synonyms but look what he says he compares their their loyalty, their loving kindness to a morning cloud or to the dew. And you know, when I got here early this morning There was dew covering the grass here on our property. But see all these sections where the sun has has hit now for for a few hours? Guess what's gone? The dew. It's, it's, It's dry. And so God is comparing his people's love and loyalty to him to the morning dew. It's just, it's gone. It's here and then it's gone. It's not. Really loyal—it's it's it's almost like a a contradiction in terms. What's loyalty supposed to be ongoing, and it's not. And it's because of their lack of loyalty and love that God uses His prophets to pronounce judgment on them. And God says that His judgment comes on the people like lightning. It's fast, it's furious, it's powerful. You ever watch, especially in the dark of night, you ever watch a thunderstorm, and you know it's coming. But you don't know exactly where or when, and you're just kind of scanning the sky, and then all of a sudden, a bright bolt of lightning. And It's that fast and powerful. And God says that's how his judgment comes upon his people, because of their lack of loyalty and love. But not only is there a lack of love, there's, a, there's an absence of any true knowledge of God. Now, what do we know about that? Where do we get knowledge of God how do we gain knowledge of God it's in his word so the less time we spend in his word the less time we spend uh, knowing God and so there's a, a an absence of true knowledge of God but then he also says there's unfaithfulness by his people and these two things the lack of knowledge the lack of faithfulness are specifically stated as the things that God desires and we see that down in verse six and, and I want you to know, this is not the only place where God says this. He says it several other places in His Word. That, what is He really looking for? Is God looking for our stuff, our offerings, our sacrifices? Is that on the top of His list? Is that what He wants from us? Of course not. You know why I know that? Because God owns everything. He doesn't need our stuff. Anything that we have is a gift from Him anyway. So he doesn't need things from us. What what does he want? He wants our hearts. He wants our devotion. He wants relationship. He doesn't need anything we have, no possessions. He asks for those things as a token of our devotion to him. So, see, he can gauge our love and faithfulness and loyalty by how willing we are to prioritize him above things and so when God asks for these things it's almost like a contradiction because he says you need to do these things these sacrifices these burnt offerings but all through the scripture here's what we see in verse 6 in our passage today he says I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings But that's not the only place. Do you remember Psalm 51 we studied a few weeks ago on a a Wednesday or Sunday evening? Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, where David is praying his prayer of repentance. And he says, if you wanted sacrifice, I would give it. If you wanted burnt offerings, I'd bring them. But that's not what you want. The sacrifices of God are a, a contrite heart, a broken spirit, humble repentance. That's what he wants. 1 Samuel 15, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed better than the, the fat of lambs. He, he doesn't need our sacrifices, but those are a gauge of how loyal we are. Isaiah chapter 1, from verse 11 to verse 17, it's the same thing, and it's echoed in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. In, and in Amos, if you ever, we've studied this before, um, months ago when we went through that prophecy but Amos chapter 5, from verse 21 to 24, God tells his people, I hate what you're doing. He says, and, and, and to relate it to our day, he uses the terms like solemn assemblies and sacrifices and burnt offerings. He says, I hate them. I, I don't even want to smell the aroma of these burnt offerings because it makes me sick to my stomach. That's what God says. Now, he asked him to do those things. So why would those, those things make him sick? For this simple reason. When we come to God and we think we can check a box and go through a routine and satisfy some arbitrary religious requirement instead of really truly being devoted to God in our hearts, that's what makes him sick. If we think, hey, well, I'll just stop by church today and I'll throw a couple dollars in the offering plate and I'll go on my way and my heart won't be changed at all, but, you know, I'll be all right. God will think I'm good. Folks, that's a terrible terrible misunderstanding of how God relates to his people. He doesn't need that, and he certainly doesn't want it when it doesn't come from a heart that is truly devoted to him. What he wants and desires is relationship and humble repentance and surrender, devotion. There's a tendency to sin that comes with our fallen nature. And you see, he touches on this here in verse 7 when he talks about just like Adam, just like that disobedience, that rebellion, we've transgressed the covenant. We've dealt treacherously, or in other words, we've been unfaithful to God. It ultimately occurred in the Garden of Eden, but, but guess what? It happens all the time. Every time we're disobedient, every time we're rebellious, every time we think we know better than God and we just do whatever we want to do and we just disregard his word and his desire for our lives, we're being unfaithful to him. We're, we're breaking our covenant with God. And so these accusations are coming from God to his people. And, and why does he do that? He's trying to warn them. He's trying to turn their direction back to him because that's what they desperately need. So those are the accusations, number one. But number two, the consequences of sin found from verse 8 to verse 11 as we finish out this chapter. The Bible says there is an abundance of violence. This is a consequence of sin. And just for a moment, think about our world our culture what do we hear if you watch the news have you have you watched a news cast on television in the past month where sometime during that 30 minutes or or an hour something's not mentioned about at least one person dying or getting shot or getting robbed or something like that happening every single time we watch the news right it's, it's violence that's run rampant, and it's a consequence of sinfulness. That's the world we live in. That's the culture we live in. And he mentions Gilead being a city of wrongdoers, wickedness, he says. And he says it's so wicked that he talks about bloody footprints. There's so much violence and so much death as a direct result of sinfulness and rebellion against God that he said there's, there's fo- footprints in the blood in that city because it's so widespread not only is there an abundance of violence there's also spiritual murder led led by the priests the very ones who're supposed to be turning people back to God and leading them in that direction the bible says they lie in wait for people so it's not just accidental they're planning these things and their crimes the word here that's used in the text have a connotation of a sexual sin he talks about harlotry, he talks about prostitution, and all of this in the context of people who are supposed to be devoted to God. In fact, the, the word translated crime in verse 9 is, was also used elsewhere in the Old Testament to denote things like incest or cult prostitution or rape or adultery. It's that type of terrible uh, violation that God is talking about here. And it's led by those who are supposed to be watching out for the spiritual health of the people. Gilead and Shechem were designated by Joshua as cities of refuge. You know what a city of refuge was in the Old Testament? That's where when there was an unintentional crime of uh, taking someone's life, they could flee to a city of refuge to be protected so they wouldn't be uh, killed in return as a punishment for their crime. It's a... The land would be spared outbreaks of bloodshed and justice would be promoted. And ironically, in Hosea's day, those same cities that were supposed to be cities of refuge had now become associated with bloodshed and injustice, which is the exact opposite of what they were designed to be. That's the consequence of sin. See, when we think we know better than God and we go off on our own way and we just try to do whatever we want to do and we disregard God's good and perfect word and teaching, that's what happens. That's a consequence. It's a direct result of ignoring who God is and what he says. There's spiritual adultery committed by the people. In verse 10, God says, He sees a horrible thing in Israel. Look at the text. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there, and Israel has defiled itself. These people have defiled themselves by chasing idols. It's spiritual adultery. And because of that, judgment that is not only certain but thorough exhaustive almost that judgment is coming as a result of their sin the bible said there is an appointed time of harvest in judah now on first reading that may seem like a good thing but it is not because you know you can have good fortune and bad fortune right well look at the end of verse 11 when I restore the fortunes of my people. That's not necessarily a positive word. The word translated harvest in verse 11 is referring to the impending judgment that is coming to Judah. And, and here's a little a New Testament witness to an Old Testament word. And you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. But if you'd like to note it, the text that I'm turning to is Galatians chapter 6, verses seven and eight because god says here there's a harvest appointed for you and i'm going to restore the fortunes of my people and in galatians chapter six verses seven and eight here's what the bible says do not be deceived god is not mocked for whatever a man sows this also will he reap for the one who sows to his own flesh will from flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life you see what you sow, you'll reap. What have, what have they sown? What is Israel and Judah and Ephraim? What have they sown? They've sown sinfulness and disobedience and rebellion and spiritual adultery, idolatry. That's what they've done. And so now they're going to reap that harvest. They're not going to reap of a positive harvest, a blessing. They're going to reap judgment that is directly related to their sinfulness. And as we think about what this passage teaches us about how God related to his own chosen people, Israel, if we think about that relationship and we apply those principles to our lives today, what can we learn from that? What's our personal application from this text? We should not fool ourselves into thinking that God is going to turn a blind eye To sinfulness and disobedience and rebellion, idolatry, any of those things that we see happening and taking place in God's people here, you know what the Bible tells us? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is consistent, He's perfect in all His character, but He's consistent. We don't ever have to wonder or worry. Is God going to change the way he relates to us? Is his character going to change? Is he going to start dealing with us differently all of a sudden? No, we don't have to ever worry about that because he is constant and consistent. So the, the, the bad side of that is if he is constant and consistent, then we see how he deals with sin here in this text. We see how he has dealt with his chosen people. How, do, how should we expect him to deal with us today? How should we expect him to treat sinfulness and disobedience and idolatry today? Should we expect some different uh, uh, exception, maybe? Should we expect him to give us a mulligan and say, Oh, I know, well, I know you probably didn't mean to do that. So, uh, yeah, and I know you've done it over and over and over. Uh, but I, I'm going to just let it slide this time. i will give you a pass this time. Sh- should that be our expectation? Does that even make sense? You know, when we think through this and we see how God relates, we should know. We well, First of all, we can't hide our sin from God. We can fool every other person on the planet, but we can't fool God. He knows everything. He sees everything for us to even imagine that we're just going to, We're gonna skate by. We're gonna slip one in, you know, we're gonna slip under the radar, so to speak. We're not gonna be seen or heard or noticed. God's not gonna punish me for that. Remember, he's gracious and merciful and forgiving and kind and good, right? He's he's loving, right? And he's all those things. But he's also holy. He's righteous. And he is just and he is always perfect perfect in his judgments he doesn't make a mistake you know you say what you want about our judicial system in the united states it certainly isn't perfect there's always being mistakes made you can never say that with god he never makes a mistake so his judgments his punishments to use a term his punishments always fit the crime And we will not slide by unnoticed. Let me close with this statement. James Montgomery Boyce said these words about this text. One of sin's tragedies is that it causes us to think it can be hidden. It cannot. God reminds us that it is ever before him. The only escape from judgment for sin is a true repentance and a turning to God for salvation through the death of Christ. There just simply is no other way. To think that sin could ever be hidden from God, as I said, it can be hidden from people, but it will never be hidden from God. There are always consequences for our actions. And the sooner we recognize that and turn to Christ and be forgiven and granted uh, eternal life and salvation. That's the plan. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. And when he hung on that cross, and as recorded in John chapter 19 and verse 30, and he said, it is finished. He didn't stutter He didn't misunderstand the the purpose of what he was doing. He knew what he was saying, and he was correct when he said, It is finished. It is accomplished. The debt has been paid. So why do we tarry? Why do we wait? Why do we continue in unbelief or disobedience or rebellion when Christ is standing, waiting, pleading to receive mercy and grace? He's anxious even to to shower those things on us and yet we wait and we rebel and we disobey and then we fool ourselves into thinking that somehow God's just going to let it slide. My plea for you today, be reconciled to God. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in His sacrifice. Trust Him for salvation. Receive forgiveness. Receive the promise of eternal life. Don't wait another day. Don't wait another minute. If you are not confident that you belong to Jesus, today's the day. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word.